up, what up? Standing 10 toes down, this is Luke Cooper, and this is Say It In The Room, a weekly podcast where we talk about how to make every room in tech more inclusive for anyone that doesn't have white male privilege. I'm a former M&A lawyer, tech founder with $70 million of all cash exits, including my last one, Fixed, a web and mobile repair application with hundreds of thousands of customers and now available in every T-Mobile store in the world. It was an overnight success, eight years in the making, and my Mud to Magic platform is designed to make sure genius and whatever hood it is does not go undiscovered. To learn more about our platform, this episode, and my upcoming book, Mud to Magic, go to muddtomagicbook.com. Today, I am beyond excited to welcome my brother, my fellow tech entrepreneur, tech executive, and founder, Clarence Wooten, to the show to talk about equity in the tech space and how to get it if you're a founder. Um, I first learned about Clarence Wooten at Babson College. I was in my MBA program, you know, thinking about like what thing I was going to start up uh, in 2011. And I see this, uh, this figure come on the TV in one of my classrooms as we're talking through this case study. And they're talking about this great founder that, you know, did all these incredible things. And he happened to be from Baltimore. I couldn't believe it because I was living in Baltimore at the time. As um, soon as I got back to Baltimore, I stalked this guy, made him an advisor. We became, you know, great friends. Um, and today, I'm just very uh, excited to welcome Clarence to the show. Clarence, I would love for you to, you know, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and um, you know, and we'll get into it. Absolutely. Well, first off, Luke, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. Uh, Mud the Magic. What a great name. I'm I'm really looking forward to your book coming out. Um, <clears throat> Oh, yeah. You, you neglected to mention one thing. We, we discovered that we have the exact same birthday as well, <laughs> um, but five years separated. Right. right. I, I won't say who's older. But <laughs> <laughs> let's just say it's five years separated. But yeah, no. Uh, thanks for that intro. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, given that you read about me in the, in the case study um, when you were working on your MBA in entrepreneurship at Babson, automatically makes me an OG. So, you know, I, I've been in this, obviously I've been in this game for a minute. Um, you know, as you said, I'm originally from Baltimore. I kind of got a mud to magic story of my own. I, um, you know, grew up in a tough part of Baltimore called Walbrook Junction. Um, it was the kind of neighborhood where you were either a predator or you're going to be a prey. You, you didn't really have much choice beyond that as a young black male. Um, fortunately for me, my parents, uh, got us out of there right around the time I was 13, which is probably that point of no return, and um, and um, moved us out to the suburbs. Um, uh, at the time, it was a predominantly Jewish community, um, and um, although, although that's changed over time, but yeah, and and that that kind of changed my life. I realized that life wasn't about being hard; it was about being smart. Um, and I realized that because I, you know, I'm in this solid middle class environment. I'm looking around, and I'm. I'm seeing how my Jewish friends' parents were living was completely different than how we were living. And I realized that education and entrepreneurship was really behind their lifestyles. And uh, at that particular point, I decided I was going to be an, I was going to be an entrepreneur. And so um, ultimately, somehow I was a good athlete, ended up um, at Johns Hopkins, um, you know, started off studying. So I just want to chime in there one second, uh, Clarence. So you, and we'll get into it maybe later, but like the term serial entrepreneur is the one that we use often today and we've used over the years. Um, and that term was first applied to you, wasn't it? 
Well, I don't know if it was first applied to me, but um, the first time I heard it is when the Washington Post wrote an article uh, about me. Uh, or no, actually, they, they wrote an article about serial entrepreneurs and they included me in that Roundup article. And this was in 2000. Um, Entrepreneur Magazine did something similar around that time. And, you know, I started referring to myself as a serial entrepreneur and people were like, what? Um, because really that's in essence what I had done since, since college when I started my first company. Now, fortunately for me, when I, when I completed undergrad, it was right around the time this thing called the dot-com boom was taken off. This is mid-90s. And, um, you know, I, I saw this as a unique opportunity. So otherwise, I would have probably ended up in business school like you. Um, but <laughs> I wasn't sure if the opportunity would last forever. So I, I immediately jumped at it. And um, a partner of mine from another business, we finally came up with a concept called ImageCafe.com. And Image Cafe was the world's first superstore of ready-made websites for small business. Uh, we used to say we serve hot websites to go. And small businesses, small businesses can look like the Fortune 500 for under 500. Now, <laughs> that's great. if you guys are familiar with um, Wix or Squarespace, that's exactly really what we were. But this was uh, late 90s. And fortunately for us, before the bubble burst in 2000, a year prior to that, Network Solutions, who had a monopoly on domain names at the time, they were the GoDaddy of that era. Uh, they acquired they acquired Image Cafe, and um, uh, I ended up there for a couple of years doing an earnout, continuing to run uh, Image Cafe, and we were the default website solution for millions of domain name buyers. And so, um, uh, Image Cafe is actually still part of what they do today. Um, you know, two decades later. What a fascinating so, story. Yeah. So that, that, that's what really kicked it off for me as an entrepreneur in Baltimore. And um, and that was life changing, of course, because I certainly didn't grow up with means. But that really solidified, so basically solidified my path to building tech startups, specifically in the Internet space. And, you know, I went on to do a couple more. Um, I can talk about those now. I can talk about those later. or We'll get into those as, as we go. Um, but one of the things I want to touch upon you know the the topic of this show today is is equity in the tech space and how to how to get it, um, if, if, particularly if you're a, a, a underrepresented founder. Um, in 1999, if you're braving the tech space, like not only is equity in the tech space not really a thing or a conversation, but the tech itself is is uh, is all new and and nascent. So how did you begin to navigate that as a you know quite frankly as a black man from Baltimore? where, you know, there might not have even been a market for, you know, investment in these kinds of things. Yeah, well, I mean, first off, I was naive because I was young. Um, and, I, and I actually, I tell entrepreneurs today, be naive. Um, mm -hmm. Because when you're naive, you'll speak to, you'll reach out to anybody. Um, you know, when I started a company and I put CEO on my card, I felt like, hey, I'm a CEO. Bill Gates is a CEO. We're peers. I should be reaching out to Bill. Um, now that that wasn't how I raised my capital, but but in general, I, I think that's a, a, that's an important thing to capture and remember. Um, you know, back then there were no ma I mean, there were only a couple of early super successful dot com stories, so it wasn't like the internet had this big history um, of who could be successful and who could not be successful. It was still nascent in that way. Um, so as a result, you know, there were no real patterns to match. 
right? Uh, John Doerr talked about pattern matching, looking for someone who dropped out of college from Harvard, et cetera. And then he finds the next, you know, looking for the next Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. That, that, that pattern didn't exist in the internet space. And so in the, in the late 90s, when I first learned about Silicon Valley and how it worked and went out there to try to raise capital for Image Cafe, uh, it was it was a very different it was a very different space. I actually felt like I got a pretty decent reception. Um, it wasn't um, it wasn't a bro culture. I think that came later. That didn't come until like the 2010s. Um, but um, um, so so yeah. So back then it was different, but it was still hard to raise capital. I wasn't able to truly raise capital from Silicon Valley, but I I did meet a gentleman on my flight out there who happened to be an angel investor, an ex-Alex Brown guy who was running a private client group at Bank Boston Robertson Stevenson. And the funny story is I sat in first class um, and I'm still amazed that I was able to pull this off because I didn't even have the money to fly out there. I I had an ex-girlfriend who was a flight attendant and I told her, I said, look, you gotta let me fly out there on your buddy pass. And even more important than that, you have to, I got to sit in first class. And she's like, what, what, why you got to sit in first class? I said, so, because I might sit next to an investor. And I got that because a few years prior, I had listened to this guy, Earl Graves, the founder of Black Enterprise, give a talk at Morgan State University to their business school. And I was in the audience. I just came there to check out the talk. And he mentioned that he was on a first class flight um, and that he ended up sitting next to a um, a Pepsi, um, Pepsi executive, and they were looking for somebody to, a, a black person to launch a Pepsi bottling franchise in the DC area. And the guy was like, oh, wow, this black guy sitting in first class, maybe he's my guy. And that turned into a Pepsi bottling franchise. So, you know, I think I understood even back then that first class could be like the golf course. Right. So, um, the and that's the power of, a, of adjacency. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I think there's a that there's really, really power and intention um, and and in laws of the universe. And because I believe that to be the case, that's what ended up happening. I ended up sitting next to this guy. It turns out he was a he was a big angel investor. And even though I didn't get any money from Silicon Valley, I got money from him and a group of his friends who he introduced me to. And that was enough to really launch the company after we had bootstrapped it for many months. I, I think your your comment is great. You know, be naive. Uh, I haven't heard that you know stated that way, but it makes absolute sense and it resonates. Um, completely contrarian, uh, which is what I expect out of uh, such a great founder. Um, but you know, when you think about black founders, particularly, like we we are often you know last to the to the table, right? We, you know, you look at tech over the last forty years, nothing has created more millionaires than tech. You know, not even in the last 400, anything's created more millionaires. And so we're late to the party, you know, uh, with 85% of the money going to white males. How, you know, how, how can we, you know, sort of continue to be naive in the ways that are important to, you know, achievement of your goals and your, you know, fueling your passion and things like that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, eliminate certain naiveties that often, you know, restrict us from, you know, whole yeah. segments of the market. Well, first, let me say that, you know, I'm bullish on black talent. Um, You know, I I believe that the computer industry is now the consumer industry because we're all walking around with supercomputers in our pocket. 
Um, and when you look at the consumer industry and you look at trends and you look at culture and you look at what shapes and drive, um, you know, um, the consumer industry, it's usually black culture, specifically black American culture. We have an outsized impact on global culture. Um, I call us the design thinkers of global culture. So if we can do that, and, and a lot of that probably comes from the fact that our own culture was stripped from us. So we've had to be super creative. Um, and that creativity, you know, when you fill it with capital and you bring it to tech, uh, has phenomenal potential. So, um, you know, I don't, even though this conversation is about us being less than, from a capital perspective, we are absolutely not less than. Um, we are greater than. Um, and once once we have access to, you know, an equivalent or even, doesn't even have to be an equivalent amount of capital, just a decent okay. amount of capital, yeah. a fair amount of capital. You know, instead of 1%, give us 10% of the venture capital. Um, you'll see, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal things. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's a great point, Clarence. You know, and, and I, I think your experience has, has guided you and that helped you navigate a, a litany of, of quagmires that, you know, other founders have, have you know, faced and failed. Right. I, so how do we change this going forward? This is one of you. Right. I was lucky to find, find you in 2011 after my experience at Babson. But, you know, you know, for the for the, you know, thousands of other, you know, black tech entrepreneurs out there who are trying to brave new domains like there's you know, how do they how do they do that? Yeah. Yeah. OK. Well, um, you know, raising money is always challenging, uh, even whether you're black or not black. Right. Um, um, in the tech space, it's it's um, it's even more challenging because, you know, all the institutional capital or or the overwhelming majority is doled out by people who don't look like you, that people who have, um, you know, biases and, and some and, and many of those biases, biases are um, unintentional, um, but they exist. We all have these biases and. Um, you know, and when you think about raising capital, I mean, I, I wrote a put post on Medium years ago. I said, why your startup hasn't gotten funded? Um, and really, when you think about raising capital, it's, it's really two things that drive your ability to raise capital. Um, you got to have one or the two. Uh, you either have to have traction and traction trumps everything. Um, but the tough part is it's hard to get traction if you haven't gotten at least some capital in the door to get you that traction. Um, or you need what I call TVR, team, vision, and relationships, right? You always need now. And, and so let me let me really dial, dial in on TVR. Yeah, let, let's, let's double click on that, on team yeah. TVR, team, team, vision, and relationships. Team, vision, and relationships. Um, if you are sometimes a white male, you might have those relationships and no team and no vision, but relationships are, are the strongest part of that. Um, and sometimes relationships alone can get you capital, uh, particularly if you have a relationship with the VC investor. Um, Silicon Valley is, uh, and the tech industry is also very brand driven. So your team, is really all about um, signals. Does somebody from your team come from, you know, uh, were they head of product at, at Facebook or Google? Or did they come from Stanford Engineering? Um, you know, 
uh, all of these things, were they early at Airbnb? You know, all of these things, um, you know, you need to showcase on your team, particularly if you don't have the relationships, because that sends VCs a particular signal. So if you don't have, if the makeup of your team doesn't, you know, have the, that kind of brand power on it, it's hard to get capital. And when you think about Silicon Valley as a whole, only 2% of all of Silicon Valley, only 2% of employees in Silicon Valley are black. So, so that, that's almost a catch 22, yeah. right? Um, and, then, and then the third piece is the vision. I mean, the vision has to be big. It has to be outsized to the point where they believe it's going to be a big space and it's going to deliver venture level returns, right? You know, not all businesses are designed to be venture backed businesses uh, because they may not be going after a big enough market. They may not have, you know, a big enough vision, et cetera. And so team vision and relationships are really the three things that drive getting capital, particularly absence of traction. That's great. That is such great feedback. I want to dive into that. I want to dive into specifically, you know, how do you navigate those those challenges as a as a as a black entrepreneur, particularly when you didn't go to the same schools as the folks around you who might be in the tech space, or you don't necessarily have those relationships? How do you even begin to build it? There's all kinds of tools online that help us do this today. Um, But before we do that, I want to dive into our magic minute. Today's magic minute is brought to us by SciDeploy. C-Y-D-E-P-L-O-Y. SciDeploy is an intelligent automation tool providing enterprises with the answer to to this question. If I make these cybersecurity updates, what will break on my system? Most enterprises, I don't know if you knew this, wait over 90 days or indefinitely to make updates because they don't want to disrupt their operations and don't have clarity on what the impact will be. The problem with this is that 80% of successful breaches are due to misconfigured and unpatched systems. And the cost of breaches in the U.S. averaged out to $8.9 million per company in 2020. By enterprises getting a clear, efficient answer regarding the impact of making security changes before the changes are made to production, they are able to avoid being in a situation of having vulnerable systems which hackers can exploit. If you're interested, you or your company is interested in side deploy and having a conversation with them, feel free to look them up on the web at www.sidedeploy.com. So back to your question. Um, again, I'm joined with Clarence Wooten today. He is uh, an all-star entrepreneur from Baltimore. My brother, Ben, uh, you know, and his phone on each other's phone uh, since 2011 when I discovered him at Babson. Uh, and a case study. Um, today, we're talking about equity in the tech space and how to get it. Um, Connors, where we left off was a conversation about you know the lack of talent, access to talent and resources for Black entrepreneurs at, at the earliest foundational stage. How can they begin to uh, you know cross some of those 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 chasms you know as they're as yeah. they bring a thing to the market? Yeah, I mean, you know, I a lot of people believe that to be a tech entrepreneur, you need to be technical. Right. You need to be a software engineer. And yes, that helps. But I'm not a software engineer. Never have been. Um, uh, but I, I do. Consider my, yeah. But I consider myself to be technical. Um, but more important, I'm visual. Right. So if you're not technical, be visual and be an incredible storyteller. Right. So anytime I'm bringing something to life, I 
conceptualize what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to work. Um, and then I will spend a little bit of money hiring a designer to start to sort of um, uh, build out a UI uh, and design what the product would look like if it existed today. And then I bake that into a narrative, into a, into a pitch deck um, that you know, ties the business vision around it. Um, and when you do that, you can kind of lead with that as your recruiting mechanism for talent, right? So um, if you're not technical, be visual and use and, and be a great storyteller and, and use that to raise capital, you know, whether it's, it might be just be a little bit of seed capital, um, but use that to attract, to attract other co-founders who might have bigger brands and bigger names than you uh, and better resumes. Um, but if they, you know, people don't have big time imaginations, you got to show it to them visually. And so, you know, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. Uh, so a lot of times you won't get that far just by talking. You got to yeah. show. I think you just dropped another gem on my audience. Uh, don't be technical, be visual. Let's look at a city like Baltimore. How do we begin to make a dent here? I mean, you, you know, look at the year 2018 to 2019. You know, I did a six and a half million dollar Series A that year, but only six point seven million was brought into the whole city for tech entrepreneurs, um, black tech entrepreneurs specifically, and that was six point seven out of the hundred and fifty million that went other places. Right, so we didn't get any of that um, other than the small piece I, I you know, I, I earned. Um, but how do we start to fix that? We got three hundred murders a year here. So yeah, we got a lot of big problems, big societal problems to solve. But tech to me seems you know like a, a great starting place to um, to fixing things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the number one way to fix the lack of capital is to make sure that the, uh, institutional investors who dole out capital are representative of the people who should be receiving it. Right. And so when you look at, if you, when you look at where venture funds get their money, you know, a lot of them get their money from, um, institutional investors, um, universities, uh, university endowments, banks, pension funds. Um, and those, you know, a lot of that capital was generated by black and brown labor. So when you look at those universities, those banks, those pension funds, and you look at the percentage of African-Americans who put money into those pension funds, you know, they don't realize that their money is being managed by, you know, 99% of their money is being managed by um, uh, white VCs, et cetera, at least the portion that goes to the venture space. So it needs to be representative of that. And so, um, you know, I, I would say at least 13 percent of of capital that's allocated for VC fund managers should go to black VC fund managers, because that's the percentage of the population that we make up. Yeah, that's uh, great perspective. Great perspective. Are there are there any fund managers today that you think, you know, have a have a good perspective? I mean, we, we are, as you know, launching. Latimer, um, a $250 million vehicle to do a lot of the things that we're talking about. Um, Low Tony is an advisor and Charles Hudson's an advisor. And, you know, we're excited to have them on board. Um, they're great investors that I know you know well as well. Are there others that people just are missing in today's market? Well, I mean, I, I think coming off the heels of, of um, 2020 and George Floyd, I, I have, and we all heard about all the commitments that, you know, companies were going to make to, um, you know, helping to solve some of these issues. 
Um, I have seen a number of African-American, um, younger African-American uh, VCs emerge uh, and they've been able to bring in some capital, but normally that's sub $10 million, which I guess is okay for a first fund. Um, some have gotten, like my guys here in, um, in LA at Slauson & Co., I think they just closed on $56 million. Um, um, you know, James Norman closed on a, on a fund, um, I think maybe just north of $10 million. And so you're starting to see some of that, um, but it's still very small amounts. Now, I think once that capital is deployed, if it is deployed towards Black entrepreneurs and Black entrepreneurs do it, I know we will do with that capital, then there will be, you know, more capital committed to those, not only those funds, but it will open up opportunities for other funds. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, we start to, you know, kick the door down and, um, you know, we won't, you know, funding Black ventures won't won't be viewed as as uh, as charity. They'd be viewed as a place to get alpha, right? That's extreme exactly. alpha, extreme exactly. alpha. And so, um, you know, I, I think we're we're on the path, but the path is slow moving, and Indeed. I'd like to see it move a lot faster. Yeah, the the number went up to maybe one point five percent of total allocation to to black founders in twenty twenty one. That was after George Floyd. So we've got yes. a long, we've got a long way to go. There's no we, question about it. We increased it by a half a percent. Yeah. Do 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 people always make the connection? You think between George Floyd and and like you know the lack of equity in the in the tech space for Black founders or the the kinds of aggressions that you might even face? Well, I, I I mean I I think everybody being home during the pandemic, watching all the stuff that was happening to Black Americans in this country, realized I think some people who even people I you know uh, I've heard stories of. Um, I won't name names, but famous investor from India, you know, came over, pulled himself up by his bootstrap, built a great, you know, company and then built a great firm, never really understood why black Americans couldn't do the exact same thing until George Floyd and the things that went down. Then I think it, you know, they begin to see that racism towards black Americans in this country is structural in a way that it's not towards any other immigrants. Um, and this country was really built on, on that racism. And so um, that began to open up some eyes to say, oh, okay, we, we, we really do need to do something. This is, it's, it's not, we, we can't compare apples to oranges. This is compared, you know, um, that's because I came from India and I, I grew up in the slums and I was able to make it here. You know, I wasn't, you know, under attack in the same way that, um, you know, um, the African-Americans and blacks who've been here for 400 years have been, um, you know, you know, and I, might even argue, I might even argue that like Walt Walbrook is a, a level beyond the slums, <laughs> right? Bridgeport, a level beyond. Yeah. The slums, okay. right? yeah well, you know, yeah, I mean, we, we can we can definitely <laughs> talk about that. And, I, and, I, and I, I think when you come from an environment like that, just on that side, that same side note, and somehow you, you make it out and you become successful, um, you have an ability to see both sides. Um, and not just an ability to see both sides, you have a different level of grit and drive and determination that, um, you know, you don't get when you, when you grow up in a middle-class household and you never had to worry about your tennis shoes being taken at gunpoint. 
Yeah. <laughs> Something that you experienced uh, growing up, <laughs> as, you, as you alluded to in the past. Um, yeah. let, me, let me turn our attention to another thing I wanted to raise, and maybe we'll, we'll end on this topic. You know, I think grit and drive and all those things are important and they are fundamental to my success, your success. You know, you know, we, we talk, we've talked about that online, offline in a variety of ways. But, you know, at some point as a, as a founder, you need to like step back and reflect. You know, it, it's the reason why in engineering you have retros and things like that to, to consider, you know, you know, your work and how, you know, it went that week or over some period of time. And so, like, I believe a lot in, in healthy routines, having healthy habits and lots of routines. I, I, you know, probably 75, 80 straight days of meditation. I do yoga, uh, Peloton and other things to sort of, you know, put my mind at ease. What are some of your routines, habits? What are some things that you might even advise other black founders as a way to sort of navigate, you know, all these things in terms of mental health? Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um... You know, I, I've I've always tethered towards freedom, and that's part of the reason why I've been an entrepreneur my entire career. Um, and I've always been a go with the flow guy, not very structured, right? So I'm I'm probably the last person to ask about a particular routine because one of the things that I've always loved is being able to have control over where I breathe my oxygen. Am I breathing my oxygen inside of a cubicle somewhere? Or am I breathing my oxygen walking along, you know, the strand in Manhattan Beach? Um, and so, you know, my routine is just having flexibility over my time mm -hmm. um, and to be able to switch up routines if I need to be able to switch up routines uh, and, and to have that flexibility. Now, I've learned, though, that it is good. I mean, everybody needs certain things for their mental health. And one of the things I've learned is that the environment that I live in, um, particularly since we're now all, for the most part, working from home predominantly, um, is super critical. Because when I'm not working and I walk out the door, I almost want to feel like I'm on vacation. <laughs> and um, because I do spend a lot of time working, sitting down in front of the computer. And so, um, I would just say, put yourself in an environment that is conducive towards your mental health. Like as I do this podcast with you right now, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the ocean. I'm looking at guys on surfboards, right? Um, that in itself puts my mind at ease. This is great. Be naive. Don't be technical. Be visual and protect your mental health by protecting your environment. I love it, Clarence. I'm so happy that we had this time today. You know, I'm, I'm sure we'll catch up after the show. Um, you know, thanks again for, for blessing my audience with all of these uh, nuggets of information. Do you have any parting words that you'd like to add before we sign off? Yeah, um, you know, I, I will add this because I'm, I, I've realized that a lot of African-American um, entrepreneurs who go to raise capital really don't know how to raise capital. Uh, so I'm going to leave with this little nugget. Um, even whether you're black, white, green or whatever, it, it takes about 50 meetings to raise around the funding, right? So, and you got to tee all of those meetings up within a compressed time frame, um, because out of those 50 meetings, if you're prepared well, um, and these need to be targeted meetings, not, you need to understand, is the investor likely to invest in what you're trying to do? So you got to curate a list of probably a hundred potential investors, which will turn into, if you're lucky, 
25 to 30 meetings. Um, and from those, you will probably get five serious interests. And from those, you'll get two or three who actually invest. Um, and so I think a lot of us don't aren't successful at raising capital because we don't really understand the process and how many meetings it actually takes. So as an entrepreneur, you're going to hear a lot of no's, but, you know, just use those to sharpen your knives. Well, I hope that this uh, podcast goes far and wide so that every black entrepreneur that's out there today struggling to raise capital, you know, will find us, will find this podcast and find the words that um, you've spoken today super valuable. Thank you so much for your time today, Clarence. And uh, thanks for being a part of Say It In The Room. Amen, Luke. Keep doing what you're doing, bro. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Say It In The Room podcast. I'm your host, Luke Cooper. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support, please share it with others. To catch up with me, please follow me on Twitter at Ready, Set, Grind, or catch me on LinkedIn under Luke Cooper Baltimore. That's all for this week. See you next time.